0: I want to introduce you to Laura. Good enough, Laura, come on up. So, several of you know Laura.
1: Some of you don't. Laura is our speaker this weekend, and so I want you to get to know her a little bit tonight um, before we dive into. I, you know, I asked you know. at the back if they were really stools. Yep, it's a stool. <laughs> yep, we'll a find stool. out. <laughs> Hi, Laura. Hi. So Laura is a dear friend of mine who I'm thrilled to have with us this weekend. And Laura, tell us just something about your growing up years, where you grew up, okay. your family of origin, siblings, sure. a little about okay.
2: you. Yeah, great. Um, I grew up in a smallish town called Grants Pass in Southern Oregon, um, lived there until just birth till senior year in college, and then moved to Salem to attend Willamette University. And... I never left. I didn't anticipate that. I didn't say, I want to grow up and I want to live in Salem. But i that's where I ended up going um, to Willamette and ended up going to graduate school at George Fox after that, and then established my professional life um, in Salem. So I've, I've been there ever since. My mm-hmm. family of origin, my mom, my dad, my brother, just a family of four. Um, yeah, my brother lives in Salem as well, just a couple miles from me. And my dad's in the legislature, so they're up every once in a while while he's in session. So I get to see them, and thank goodness, because I have a toddler, and I appreciate them being around. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, it was pretty funny. Uh, my previous life, which we don't actually theologically believe in previous lives, but you know what I mean. A long, long time ago, um, I was a school teacher. And when I was a school teacher, I was invited to be on a um, some panel that had something to do with the legislature. I really can't remember anything else about it than that. But probably about a year ago, I met Laura's dad at church. Oh, cool. She came up and said, Oh, yeah, this is my dad. And I was like, Wait, you look familiar. And I'd actually been on that silly panel with him 20 years ago. It was kind of funny. That is crazy. Yeah, small, small world. world. Small world. Small world.
2: <laughs> and I just also want to say sorry to the people who are sitting right behind you and I. I know. I kind funny. of noticed. I was like, We are a wall right now. I hope it's you true. can see. It's true.
1: It's true. So you are married. I to am us married. married about Your husband, how you met, your family,
2: your son? Um, My husband, Greg, and I have been married for 11 years, and um, we have a son. He is four and a half. He just turned four and a half. He's not regular four anymore, he would have you know. (laughs) He is four and a half. And um, yeah, so we live in West Salem, and um, gosh, about us. We met, oh, it sounds really scandalous. It's not. Um, We met at church. Awesome! Everyone dreams of meeting their spouse at church, right? Well, he was in the college group, and I was a leader in the college group. It's kind of scandalous. It's not scandalous. (laughs) Janet Dengaran, you are in here. You can vouch that it was not scandalous. (laughs) I told him I liked him, then I never saw him again for like over a year, and then sheepishly he finally came back around. So, yes, he's a little younger than I am. Mm -hmm. A little. (laughs) He's in his early 30s, and I'm in my early 40s. Very cool. It's cool. Very cool.
1: (laughs) Greg's a great guy. He is a great guy. Tell us a little bit about your journey with Jesus. How'd you come to know him? A little bit about your spiritual journey. Sure.
2: I um, was raised by uh, a Christian family, and church was definitely part of our life. We did um, Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings. We did something called Grace Youth Club, which is kind of similar to Awana's, what I can kind of put together. So I grew up in that environment um, where it was very much just part of what we did. I would say um, my faith was a process of becoming my own throughout my 20s. Um, I went to Willamette, um, wasn't too involved um, with church um, here and there. But then um, as I grew into my 20s and started kind of choosing some things for myself and kind of getting to know God myself, I would say my faith really started to become organic and become my own. Um, I took some detours along the way. which, um, thankfully, he, he always um, brought me back. And um, so yeah, so that's where I am today and been able to plug in and serve along the way as I've been connected at Salem Alliance and in other things. Yeah.
1: yeah. So you've had a career in Salem for the last 16 years, and you're recently in a season of transition. Tell yeah. us a little
2: bit about that. That's right. Um, so I went to Willamette, then I took a year off and started working in politics. Um, realized that is totally not where I wanted to be working. Um, did a little bit of a self assessment and realized hey, um, the thing I like to do is what I was doing in my free time which was being a young life leader and I really loved um, developing the relationships with the high school girls um, I liked that when they went off to college they still called me in the middle of the night and said hey this thing is going on what do you think can you talk to me about it will you pray with me and those were the things that I was really feeling called to the relationships I was really feeling called to lean into so I did a little bit of a self-assessment and figured like these are counseling skills I think I'll go to school um, and get my master's degree in marriage and family therapy so I did that and immediately upon graduation um, I had a job up in Portland part-time working at a residential treatment center for teenage girls but I uh, my dream was to open up a private practice so really quickly um, I started opening I opened a business in Salem an office and just slowly on the side I was still working up in Portland but I was single and had the time and energy I do not have that anymore <laughs> um, to come back and work um, some evening hours at my office until I got my practice up and running. And so I had my private practice from 2002 um, until 2017, just a couple of months ago, when I sensed over the last year or two that God was really calling me to more. Um, I have absolutely cherished and treasured my career. I've been so grateful that he built um, a thriving practice and um, in, in the community. Um, but I really sensed over the last year—it um, sounds like a strange word—but I really felt confined um, by my profession um, and my professional identity, and sort of the identity that I carried with me everywhere I went, which was being um, an emotional support for people. And while that is something that is very genuine and um, something that I is very true about who I am. Um, I felt that there was more of me. Um, So I was, like I've said before, I've been driving in this lane really, really hard. And I felt like there was more road for me to be on. So I don't know what that more is at this point in time. Um, I just felt prompted by God um, through various conversations and books that I read and through the support of my husband that the right step now was to close down um, my profession. So that was a no small step, um, being um, dialed in in that way for so long and with so many people. And I also teach out at Corbin University. I've done that for 16 years, and I just taught my final class there. So I'm really doing this wholesale um, kind of downshift and and, um, off-ramp with my career as I know it, and opening myself up basically to a huge season of wandering and seeing what God wants to bring about um, in that. And as a side note, which is also not a side note, it's a huge note, um, my husband is also not working right now. So he felt the prompt um, last year to quit his job profession. He's been working um, for the state for 10 years in various jobs, and he's always wanted to go back to school and get a master's degree. So last year, he decided to go back to school, totally supported that, was so excited to um, support him in that and to walk that road with him. So while he was in school last year, getting his master's in legal studies at Willamette College of Law, I was in the process of closing my business down. What we did not anticipate is that we would both be unemployed at the same time. And while that has been A tremendous gift you can only imagine what that might feel like that wasn't something that we totally anticipated we thought oh for a couple of months oh that'll be so fun Um, and it's been a lot longer than a couple of months we're going on six months now Um, so while this season is designated and set aside for me to be a season of rest and for listening for God for what's next we're now doing that collectively as a family God what do you have next for us Um, this last six months um, of of my husband having graduated, and now me being unemployed as well, has been a rich season. I will talk with you about that throughout the weekend. Um, But it has been real. (laughs) It has been very, very real. Um, We have felt the insecurity of certain things. We have felt the confusion um, of certain opportunities that we thought were there but ended up not being. Um, So I'm going to be sharing more of that with you. But that's the season that we're in currently.
1: Yeah. Laura is one of my favorite people to um, partner with in speaking because I love your insights and I love your communication gifts. And so early on in the prep for this retreat, we were going to have three of us who would speak together. And Laura was a first yes. And so she and I were in and we kept looking for a third and it just for very valid reasons wasn't working out. And so she and I had talked about that maybe she'd take two sessions and I'd take two sessions and we were out to lunch. Was it even two months ago or just a it month ago? It was barely two months ago. It was barely two months ago. And I sat down and I said, okay, no is an okay answer, but I have a question to ask you. Because I think I know, you're, I know what you're going to ask me. I said, do you want to take the whole thing? She says, I thought you were going to ask me to take one more session. <laughs> and I had just really been feeling prompted that we needed to hear from Laura this weekend. And so to kind of get myself out of the equation. And when I said that, you brought up an idea, which is why I'm still here with the microphone tonight. Yes, so. totally. Um... So this season of rest for
2: me was to include saying no to everything.
1: Here we are. Everything. Aren't you glad she loves me?
2: (laughs) So I have said no to everything. So if there's anyone in here that I've said no to... I'm sorry. Um, I had, before I decided I was closing down, I, I, I did commit that I would, I would do a session. I felt totally fine with that because I love the partnership and a session would be fine. Um, but when you asked about doing the whole thing, I just, um, ugh, it was one of those things where you're like, no, God. And then he's like, yes. Um, so the content just parallels what my life has been, been like lately and this season. Uh, coming off of a season of being a warrior really hard for 15 years, entering into a season of wandering, what that's like on the heart (laughs) to do that in real time, in real life. So I just felt like, dang it, (laughs) it kind of matches up. So I had the idea. I was like, all right, I'll do it. But I would do it under the condition that you would start us off with a biblical overview of Joshua's life. Um, A, because I think we are always blessed when we hear from Jennifer, and we hear from her and how she digs into the Word and what she can get from that for us. And selfishly, I might need a little more of that. Um, And also, I don't want to be on the hook for Bible study. I'm just telling you, I am not. Um, There's a different level of accountability for going through Scripture, and I don't want to be held accountable, and I feel like Jennifer would be better to be held accountable for that (laughs) when we get there. So... (laughs) That's just honest.
1: (laughs) So Laura and I love working together, and tonight what's going to happen is I'm going to take the next half hour and just walk us through the life of Joshua super-duper fast, and I actually love doing that and love the ability for Laura to lean into the application pieces of all of this, both from her life and from her experience, and let us dive into Scripture together tonight. So Laura, thanks for coming up. Thank you. We're going to dive in. Yeah.
0: Okay, so first question. How many of you have
1: studied Joshua, the life of Joshua, in BSF, Bible Study Fellowship? Serious hands up. Just one who's been... Oh, there's two. Okay, I'm just going to say this. You guys know Joshua better than I do, okay? So let's just be clear about that. When I was... um. I was doing some research on getting licensed with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And in order to get licensed with the Alliance, which is our denomination, you have to have a certain number of Bible credits. And I went to Western Oregon University to be an elementary school teacher, so I don't have any college Bible credits. So I was doing some research on how to kind of come in the back door to getting Bible credits. And did you know that if you um, have attended BSF and go to Corbin University, they will give you, Allie, is it two or three? Do you remember from our conversation last year? They will give you two or three Bible credits for having attended BSF. If you can show your notes and get a signature from the teaching leader that you were in BSF, it's like college-level credit. So those of you who studied Joshua there, um, you know more than I do. But let's dive into this together. The life story of Joshua, is the, it's just the story of flannel graphs. How many of you grew up with flannel graphs? Right? I mean, these are the Sunday school stories. These are the ones where you'd put the piece up and hang it on the flannel and pull it back off. And so let me just set this up for us a little bit. Um, what was happening in the, life, in the life of the world at the time of Joshua, God had set apart a nation that he called Israel And he had sent Abraham away from his land and his father's household, and they had begun to live in a certain place. And he had a son, Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob had a big old long story with lots of wives and ended up with 12 sons. And one of his sons, Joseph, was his favorite. And so his other 11 sons conspired to send him into slavery. And Joseph ended up in slavery in Egypt, and he caught the eye eye of the Pharaoh, and he was raised to a high position. And so it came that when there was a famine in the land, Joseph was in charge of dispersing food to everybody in the land. And his brothers came to him, unbeknownst to them, to be looking for food. Long story short, God's redemption all over the whole thing. The Israelite nation ended up completely coming to Egypt because of Joseph being sent into slavery and being taken care of there. The thing that was amazing about their time in Egypt was that they were set apart They were given land, they were able to multiply and to grow into a nation in relative security until the time that the Egyptians realized that the Israelites were getting too powerful for them, and so they put them into slavery. So for 400 years, the Israelites lived in Egypt, in slavery, and as they cried out to God, and you guys know the story, the book of Exodus in the Bible is the beginning of when God says, I'm going to set my people free. And and many of you know how it went. Moses, uh, the Egyptians had gone as far as to say that the Israelites had to kill all of their male babies because they didn't want them multiplying anymore and getting more powerful than them. And Moses' mom and the midwives defied that order and kept Moses alive until they couldn't hide him anymore. And then his mom put him in a basket in the river and the daughter of Pharaoh found him. Again, the hands of God and his redemption all over it. So Moses was raised in the courts of Pharaoh when he was about 40 years old, he was out in witnessing what was going on. He saw some Israelites being abused, and he killed the Egyptian who was doing it. When he was found out, he fled. He was about 40 years somewhere else where God got his attention and said, go back to Egypt and set my people free. So this is where we find things when we enter into the life of Joshua, because Joshua was about 40, 35 to 40 years old when the Israelites were set free from Egypt. So he would have lived those first 30 to 40 years of his life in this slavery culture, and he would have been part of the Exodus through the Red Sea out into the desert of all the people who were being set free from Egypt. We find out, um, starting in late Exodus, that um, Joshua is now the assistant to Moses. He is Moses' aide. I just want to walk us through some of the things that we see along the way, where we see Joshua start to come into the story, the story that mostly has been about Moses and the Israelites, and we start to see little glimpses of Joshua along the way. One of the first glimpses is in Exodus 17, This is when there was a battle with the Amalekites and Moses gave Joshua the lead of the army and Moses went up on the hill and was praying for the battle and Joshua was down in the valley leading the battle. And you might remember this one, as long as Moses' hands were lifted up, they were winning the battle. And when his hands were down, they were losing the battle. So two men came and stood beside Moses to help him hold up his arms so that they could win the battle. So we know that Joshua was battle smart and battle strong enough so to be appointed that leader. We find that um, in Exodus 24, Moses took Joshua, whom they now name as Moses' aid, to the mountain of God with him. So when Moses went to the mountain of God to get the Ten Commandments, he took Joshua with him. And then we find in Exodus 32 that when they were returning down from the mountain, it was Joshua who stated there is a sound of war in the camp. You might remember the story. The Israelites had created a golden calf while they were gone, and they were worshiping, and and so they were worshiping this golden calf. And so it was Joshua who was was aware, and he was insightful, and he was noticing things. He was with Moses when God spoke face-to-face with Moses. It says that... That they were both in the tent when God spoke face to face with Moses, and that after Moses left, Joshua would remain in the tent. He had a passion for God.
0: I want to read that one to you. That's Exodus thirty-three, verse eleven. It said, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. And eh, maybe it wasn't
1: thirty-three eleven. That's thirty-two eleven. Here we go. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. This young man with an awareness of the power and the presence of God and the desire to stay there as long as he was allowed. We skip to Numbers um, 13 and 14, and we find that they've They've made it into the desert. They're, they're making their way towards the promised land. And they get to the beginning of chapter, Numbers chapter 13. And you'll remember this part of the story. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. And it lists out everybody it lists. And Joshua was one of the men that he sent. Moses sent them to explore Canaan and he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country and see what the land is like. Then they came back and they reported back. What's fast, and you'll remember that when they reported back, they came back to Moses and Aaron. And they reported to them, they said, uh, We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So these these spies came back and they were afraid. They were fearful. And what's fascinating to me is in verse 13, chapter 13, verse two, God says, send men to explore the land which I am giving to them. He didn't say send men to see if this was a good land. He didn't say send men to see if we should go. He said, send them to explore because I am giving them this land. But when they came back, they treated it as if it was their decision. They treated it as if they were the ones who were going to decide if this was wise or not. If they were the ones who needed to weigh out everything that they had seen and say, yes, we should go forward or no, we shouldn't. God had already said he was giving it to them. And Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report and about the land they explored. This is the first true test for Joshua. Joshua has been with the Israelites all the way along. You guys, these people are not so different from us. They they were complainers. They were more comfortable with the places that they had left. They were fearful of the unknown, and God was leading them into the unknown. And yet Joshua and Caleb not only stood firm in the face of 10 other men who said, no, we shouldn't go, they stood firm in the face of a whole nation that was crying out. You'll see in um, Numbers chapter 14 that the people actually rebel. They say, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Can you fathom that? These people were slaves for 400 years and because of their fear of the unknown in their future, they said, we should choose a new leader and go back to Egypt go back to slavery because that felt more comfortable and safe than moving into what they didn't know. And Joshua stood at that crossroads and stood with God. He and Caleb were the only ones. And because of that, most of you know the story, God said, then you guys you if you guys won't go in, if you won't take it, then your generation doesn't get to go in. Forget it. You're going to wander in the desert for 40 years till all the generation of those who went in to scout out the land have died and then I will take the new generation in, except for Joshua and Caleb because they stood with me, they will be able to enter the land. And so for 40 years Israel wandered in the desert. Joshua wandered in the desert for something that wasn't his fault hear this, he did what was right. He obeyed God. He had faith and he still wandered with everybody else for 40 years. Just because we are doing what God calls us to do does not mean that we will be spared those seasons of wandering in the desert. Friends, the desert does not mean that you are bad or that God is bad. The desert means that you are in the desert. We keep going. We see a little bit more in the story. So they wander in the desert. And during those times in the desert, they had these couple times when they were out of water. And we found that God gave them manna. Manna, that white bread that fell down from heaven, and they ate that during the day. But if they collected too much, if they didn't trust that manna would come the next day and they collected too much, it would mold and mildew and rot by the next day. So even in the desert, he's teaching them, what does it look like to have our daily bread? Just enough for today. There was a time when they didn't have water, and so he told Moses, Hit the rock, and the water came out of the rock. The second time they were grumbling and complaining, and they didn't have water, and God told Moses, Speak to the rock. And Moses came out and he spoke angry words to the people, and he hit the rock. And God sent water, but he also told Moses, Because of this, you will not enter the promised land. And so when it came to the end of Moses' life, we find this in Numbers chapter 27. I want to read you just a little bit of the end of Moses' life here. They are finishing up their 40 years in the desert. They are soon to cross over into the promised land. And God has told Moses, you're not going to go. Climb this hill, look out over it, but you will not be entering the promised land. And Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Here's what you have to know that Moses and Joshua both knew about these people over and over and over and over again, they questioned authority, they rebelled against God they gave way to their fears, they gave way to the temptation to wish for what they'd had instead of having the courage to move forward until what was. Three times God told Moses, move away from these people so that I can kill all of them and I will start a new promise people through your line. And three times Moses said, no God, for what would the Egyptians think? No God, for your glory. No God, spare these people. And every time God spared them, And Joshua was witnessing that every single time. He knew how fickle these people were just as much as Moses did. And Moses knew that they needed a leader to bring them out and bring them in so that they would not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before the priest, and the entire assembly commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out, and at his command, they will come in. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before the priest and the whole assembly. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord instructed through Moses. I kind of look at this up to this point as Joshua's training for leadership. He's seen how another leader does it, so he's been mentored. He has had, he's been given some leadership experience himself, being called to lead the battle against the Amalekites, being called to be one of the 12 that goes out and explores the land. And he has been um, aware of the people. He has gotten to know the people whom they are leading. And now the leadership baton is handed over to him, and we begin in Joshua chapter 1. And in Joshua chapter 1, a really, really amazing thing happens because God repeats himself.
0: And if you've ever had God repeat himself, you know that it's time to pay attention. Look at all those notes we're just going to blow through. In our lives, in your life, in my life, when we begin
1: to notice oh, that Bible verse actually lines up with that sermon, actually lines up with that conversation with my friend over there. God is repeating himself. And when we get to Joshua chapter 1, God does this for Joshua because three times he says, be strong and courageous. As they're getting ready to cross the Jordan River, so I want to read a little bit of this to you. Uh, Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of God, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert through some geography. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Okay? So we see God setting up. I will give you every place where you set your foot. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. It says, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. That's quite a promise. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. And yet, even in light of all these things, I'm going to give you this place. No one will be able to stand against you. You've watched how I was with Moses, and I'm going to be with you the same way, and I will never leave you. Joshua still needs God to say, be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Be strong and courageous. Friends, there is nothing wrong with you and I needing to hear the voice of God remind us and call to us that we need to be strong and courageous. Even when we know the promises, even when we know his word, even when we think, I should know better, I shouldn't be feeling anxious, or I shouldn't be feeling angry, or whatever we think we shouldn't feel. I had a really wise woman tell me one time, "Um, Jennifer. You don't actually get to control your feelings. They just come up whether you like it or not. What you get to choose is what you're going to do with them. But I was expending an awful lot of energy trying to control what I feel. Friends, we can't control what rises up inside of us as far as our feelings. Our feelings are actually a gift from God to tell us that something is going on. And we need to pay attention to them. So there is no shame like Joshua in being in that place where even though we have all those promises of God, we're looking into the unknown and going, ha, ha, ha. And God is saying, be strong and courageous. And here's why. In verse six, when he says, be strong and courageous, he says, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. He reminds Joshua of his ancient promise. And then in verse seven, When he says, be strong and courageous, he goes on to talk about being careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. So first he says, be strong and courageous because remember, these are ancient promises. I said a long time ago, this is what I was going to do. And you need to anchor into those promises and hold tight to those. And then he says, be strong and courageous because I have already shown you how to do it. All those years in the desert, I was showing you the provision for how you are to live as a nation in a foreign land. Those laws, how many of you realize that so many of the laws were just simple uh, sanitation? That they didn't know back then what killed you and what didn't kill you. And so much of what God set up in the law was to keep them alive, here we think he's being kind of, you know, hard on him. No, he's actually keeping him alive. So we've got the promise, we've got his provision. And then the third time he says in verse nine to be strong and courageous, he says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And he promises his presence. Friends, this is why the life of Joshua gives us the ability to have courage when we're being called to be warriors and fight for something, or when we are in a season when we are wandering and we're not really sure when we will ever be done. Either one of those seasons in our life or the places where those two seasons are mixed up in a beautiful mess together, we can have confidence because we know God's promises, we find them in his word. Because we have his provision for how to live the life he's called us to live. And we have his presence. He told us again in Matthew when he was leaving. He said, I will never leave. Really little. 18 months maybe. Wherever you go. When my son Josiah was really little. 18 months maybe. My husband was trying to teach him a memory verse. And, uh, and I was like, he can't learn a memory verse. He's too little. And Josiah says, Hebrews 13.5. Never leave you. God said, I will never leave you. Hebrews 13, 5. They're never too young for memory versus people. And then we find so many of those flannelgraph stories just running through them quickly. They crossed the Jordan. Interestingly, when they crossed the Red Sea, Moses stood and God parted the sea and then they stepped in. When they crossed the Jordan, the priests had to step in first and then God stopped the water. Friends, it's often not the same way twice. Sometimes we feel like, oh, this looks so familiar. I've got a whole group of people who need to get across that water. But God is actually doing a new thing or a different thing. We need to watch and not expect it to look the same way it's always looked. They cross the Jordan, and the first thing God does is tell them to circumcise all the men who were not circumcised in the desert. That's everybody 40 and younger. It's kind of crazy to me that God asked them to do that on that side of the Jordan instead of back over here.
0: They send some spies into Jericho and Rahab, the prostitute, saves the spies. They march around
1: Jericho for seven days and they have this great victory and the walls of Jericho fall and they, they completely destroy it. They follow all of God's rules and then they go to attack the next city, Ai, and they fail. God said, no one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, but their second battle, they lose. They seek God. It's one of the things I love about Joshua, and I didn't write down which verse it was, so you're just going to have to take my word for it. But Joshua was someone, when he hit something like this, instead of going, God, you're not good. You broke your promises. You're not trustworthy. I can't handle it. It's, it's all over. he no, He inquires of the Lord. Okay, God, what happened here? Rather than tossing out all the promises, he goes, ah, something went sideways here. Friends, you and I could take a lesson from that. That sometimes in life when, when we've had a promise and then all of a sudden it, it appears as if it was completely wrong, false, and a lie, we go, that's it. I'm done with God. When really what we need to say is, ah, God, something went sideways here. Can you show me what that was? Is it in my heart? Is it in someone else's heart? And as they searched the community, they found that actually there was a man named Achan who had stolen and taken things out of Jericho instead of obeying the, the, the command to destroy it all. And so God singled out and showed and exposed what was happening and what the sin was. And Achan's family was stoned. And I don't even get that, so we're not talking about it today. (laughs) But after they had obeyed God and gotten rid of the sin in their community, they then attacked Ai and they had a huge victory. They renewed the covenant with God. And then right after they renewed the covenant with God, they were deceived by the Gibeonites. Do you remember that one? The Gibeonites had begun to see that they were coming, and they were beating everybody who came. And so rather than get their battlements ready, they sent some people, made them look really roughed up, gave them old moldy bread, and they came, and they pretended like they'd been traveling forever, and they said, make a treaty with us. And it says, they did not inquire of the Lord, and they signed the treaty, and
0: they were deceived by the Gibeonites. But God had them honor that treaty, and they did not destroy the Gibeonites. It's interesting, this journey of victory, defeat, victory, defeat, promise,
1: provision, presence, and yet it's still real life. And it's still messy, and it's still broken, and it's still human. This is what it means to be a wanderer and a warrior at the same time. One of my favorite things about what God set up in this whole new uh, promised land were the cities of refuge. He said, on the Jordan River... On either side, up north, in the middle, and down south, establish cities of refuge. And these will be places where people who have been accused of a crime or accused of murder can run to the city of refuge, so they need to be within a day's journey of anywhere in the nation. And in the city of refuge, you will not be able to be punished for a sin or have an avenger of death come after you to have a death for a death until you've been able to see justice. I love that in God, it's God's heart that you and I have a city of refuge. A place where we can run when the accuser, and maybe rightfully so. When the accuser of our soul has something against us, we can run to God as our refuge. And he set this up in the Old Testament in actual physical cities as a picture of what he does for us in Jesus. That we have a refuge we can run to. So at the end of the book of Joshua, there's this interesting farewell. And it's when uh, they've, they've settled most of the land, they've, they've d- done the division between all the tribes, and there's still some battles to be had. There's still some tribes that need to drive out the people, and you'll find a bunch of that in the book of Judges. But Joshua is saying farewell. And it's interesting to me that we see Joshua's deep understanding of the people that he has been leading in the way that he says goodbye to them. Because in uh, 24, verse 14, he says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served before the river or the gods of the Amorites, in whose lands you are living, but as for me and my household we will serve the Lord. "'The people answered, "'Far be it from us to forsake the Lord "'to serve other gods. "'It was the Lord our God himself "'who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt "'and who performed those great signs "'and he protected us all the way through.'" and God drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, and we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. I would feel like if I were a leader and I were saying goodbye and my people said all this stuff and they remembered the goodness that God had done, they're like, of course we're going to serve the Lord. Of course we're going to follow him. He did this and he did this and they're remembering and they're rehearsing and they're they're reminding each other. And fabulous. Amen. Go home. We're good. My my life, my leadership has been a blessing and and it's a win and there's success and, and it's over, but that hasn't actually what happened because Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Isn't that an interesting statement? You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. And the people said, we will serve the Lord. I'm a little confused about that whole thing, but here is what I notice about it. Joshua knew the people that he was leading, and he knew the words that they needed to hear, and he knew that they needed a strong call to follow God. And what's fascinating is it says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And when you turn the page to Judges, it says that they were in a season when everybody went their own way and lived according to their own desires. There's something about the community of believers reminding each other of what God has done reminding each other of his promises and his provision and his presence and living that out together that gives us shared experiences that perpetuates belief. And so we, we walk in that belief and that following of God as long as there is a witness of those who have known God for real, which is why we need to be people who lean in for the true experience of what it means to trust God and not just live on the teachings or the experiences of others.
0: Joshua was one who knew what it meant to fail.
1: He knew what it meant to succeed. He knew what it meant to have someone else's actions and decisions create consequences, long-term consequences in his own life.
0: He knew what it meant to follow God with his whole heart, and he knew what it meant to fail and forget to seek God
1: against Ai he he inquires of the lord and with the gibeonites he forgot to inquire of the lord he's a man a lot like you and i the israelites are a lot like you and i fearful more comfortable with what they left behind than with what they're moving towards complaining questioning leadership comparing their importance to one another trying to do things their own way the journey of doing life with people humans it's messy There's mess, there's victory, there's two steps forward, one step back. And that's what we're unpacking this weekend. What does
0: it look like to be both wanderers and warriors? Let's pray. Father, as we um, consider your word this weekend and consider
1: your call in our life and consider what it means to be women who seek to follow you in light of the brokenness of our world and the messiness of our lives, I pray that this weekend you would open hearts and eyes to see
0: the thing that you are telling each individual woman here. May we have fun and laugh together, and may we also reflect and learn and be transformed
1: because of our time here together. In your name, amen.